Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, for this place that we can come and gather freely for worship, and for this day, this day of rest, uh, when we can come apart and be refreshed in our pilgrim journey. Uh, Help us to make good use of these means of grace, in Christ's name, amen. So I want to do a one-off series this morning on a topic that I'm sure everybody will find absolutely fascinating. I say that sarcastically. But I do hope by the end of this you'll go, aha, this is what's going on here. So there is an entire study of texts in general, whether they be English, whether they be, uh, you know, uh, Plato, uh, the Republic. What words did Plato actually write and what have been added over the centuries before we finally get what is known as Plato's Republic? How much of this is actually Plato's words? How much of it is later additions to it? And this entire genre of, of study is known as textual criticism. And the goal of textual criticism is to find out what is original. So let me give you an example of how this is important. What is the difference between the Bible that a Roman Catholic uses and the Bible that a Protestant uses? What is the difference between those two Bibles? The Apocrypha. So, the Apocrypha Uh, a couple of the books, Tobit, uh, Judith, uh, there's, uh, there's a couple of other, there, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Maccabeans, thank you. <laughs> First, second, third, fourth, Maccabeans. So, so it's a whole bunch of books. That the Roman Catholic Church, so the Reformation begins roughly 1517-1516, the Reformation begins, and the very first issue that we've got to decide is what are the books of the Bible? What are the inspired books of the Bible? Now, does anybody know why in particular this is an issue with the Apocrypha? There's a doctrine that's contained in the Apocrypha that is unique to Rome, purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory is found only in the Apocrypha. And purgatory is absolutely essential to Roman Catholic theology, to Roman Catholic practice. If you get rid of purgatory, you get rid of basically everything that's Roman, (laughs) sort of. 
That, that's a slight overstatement. But, but it's because of purgatory that you need to do the fasting, uh, that you need to fast for Lent, that you need to only eat fish on Fridays, uh, that you need to say the Hail Marys and the Our Fathers and, and the, con- the system of the confessional. All of this, if you get rid of purgatory, you get rid of 90% of Roman Catholic living. Uh, and, and so purgatory is really an important doctrine for them. It's a central doctrine for them. And so we've got the Protestant Reformation. Now, one of the core principles of the Protestant Reformation is sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone. That's our only standard, not church councils, not church tradition, only the scriptures. The Bible alone is, is, I, there was a little song that I used to learn, uh, as a, as a kid in VBS, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Now, as a child, uh, that's a, that's a very nice little children's song. But the question is, what is the B-I-B-L-E? Uh, what are the books of the Bible? Rome has been teaching for a long time, and they actually codified it. By, by the year 1600, you've already had the Council of Trent, and the Council of Trent is a response to the Protestant Reformation, and so this is all taking place in the 1500s. By the 1600s, this is what Rome has declared to be the Word of God. The Apocrypha is part of Holy Scripture. And that's why all the Reformation documents open with what are the books of the Bible. And when they say what are the books of the Bible, they're not just reciting off all the stuff that you and I have memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. They're not just doing their little Bible recitation. They're actually wrestling with why Genesis... Why not Tobit? Why Luke? Why not First Maccabee? Uh, why this book? Why not that book? And the process by which we arrive at why this book, why not that book, is a process called textual criticism. Now again, This is just generic study. This applies to any piece of literature. What is original to William Shakespeare? What was later added to Shakespearean dramas? Uh, There's a whole field of study on that. (laughs) Uh, You can can do this with any historic piece of literature. What's the original? And then what is later added? So now, to find what is original to the Bible... If we are going to say church tradition is not our guide or our standard, if we're going to say church tradition is not our standard, then we've got to find something textual that is different between Tobit and Luke. We believe Luke is part of the Bible. We believe Tobit is not part of the Bible. Why? 
Beloved, don't you dare say, well, because you said so. (laughs) That's the whole point of the Reformation. It's not just because I said so. It's not just because the church said so. It's not just because all these great reformers that we idolize, heroics, all that. It's not just because these great men said so. That is not why this is the Bible. By the way, sidetrack, this is an important point because I cannot tell you how many times I've heard some idiot, and this is going out on the internet, so let me underscore, idiot, arrogant, stupid, ignorant, and uninformed, idiot, say, we only have the books of the Bible because some dead white guys got together and decided it. That is garbage. That is absolute garbage. It speaks from a place of ignorance. It speaks from historic ignorance. It's lazy. It's a lazy approach to criticizing Christianity and the Bible. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say that. Have you ever heard somebody say that? The reason we've got the books of the Bible is because some dead white guys came up with it. That is, do what? Okay, how many people? Raise your hands if you've heard that. (laughs) All right, look around the room. (laughs) Different people, fair enough, (laughs) fair enough. That is a intellectually lazy. I don't don't have a problem with ignorance. Uh, Ignorance is fine. I am ignorant of many things. If you want me to operate on your clogged aorta, you are in trouble. Why? Because I am completely ignorant of how to correct a clogged aorta. I have no idea what I'm doing there. And I'm smart enough to tell you that. <laughs> to stay out of my, stay out of that lane. You want to talk about a clogged aorta? I can point you to a cardiologist. I can point you to a cardiothoracic surgeon. Don't come talk to me. I'll pray with you. We'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll counsel how to walk through this spiritually. I'm not fixing your clogged aorta because I am completely ignorant. But when I spout off about techniques for clogged aortas and give you my opinions as to which is the better technique, is it the mesh or is it a drill going through the calcium, I can wax eloquent on what the best technique is for dealing with a clogged aorta. As soon as I start doing that, you should lovingly and graciously say, please stop talking. You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no authority in this area. You have no knowledge in this area. I'm sure you found a bunch of interesting stuff on Wikipedia. Uh, I'm not interested in having a conversation with Pastor Phil about how to unclog an aorta. That is not his lane. He is ignorant. And yet people do this with the Bible all the time. And graciously and lovingly, you can tell them, please stop talking. (laughs) You are embarrassing yourself. You do not know what you're speaking about. The way that we decided that Tobit 
is not inspired revelation and that Luke is inspired revelation is by very careful study. And the carefulness of the study, and, and Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 5, I think, see, 1, 5 or 1, 6. Uh, the Word of God, we, we can be persuaded by the, the beauty, the, the way in which all of it comes together, the way in which, which, which section is it? Five. five. Chapter 1, section 5. If you'll read chapter 1, section 5 of the Confession, that is textual criticism. What they are describing is textual criticism. So there are things in Tobit, there are things in Judith, there are things in 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabean that don't fit with the things in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Genesis, Exodus, these other, these other passages of Scripture. And, and so much so that, does anybody remember, there was one book that we acknowledge as part of the Bible that Martin Luther refused to acknowledge. The book of James. He said, James is an epistle of straw. And the reason was Martin Luther had this absolute rigid dichotomy between law and grace. And so law is God's commands, it is how we are to live, it is all of the precepts that are given to us. When Christ came, he fulfilled all of the law, and therefore we simply live under grace, reflecting his righteous character. Now, Luther is not teaching antinomianism. But then he looks at an epistle like James where James is all about, here's, I mean, James is essentially Proverbs for the New Testament. That's what James is. It is the New Testament version of Proverbs. It's wise living as a Christian. It's how to navigate as a Christian. And Martin Luther looked at that and he said, I don't see any gospel. I don't, I don't see Christ here in James. And so he cut it out of the Bible. This was not going to be included in, in his book of Books, list of the books of the Bible. So textual criticism is how we have arrived at this document. Textual criticism gets us there. Okay? Textual criticism begins, at least for our purposes, in the 1500s. Because you've got the church, which is Roman Catholic. The church saying, these are the books of the Bible, and you've got other people coming along and saying, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I don't see purgatory even hinted at anywhere else in the Bible. And it seems purgatory really undercuts. There's a lot of, a lot of real gospel problems with, with purgatory, because the idea of purgatory is that you must be pure. Okay, so the idea of purgatory is you must be pure before you enter into paradise. And and when we die, we're not pure. There are sins that we have not yet confessed. Uh, and so for however long a period of time, you've got to pay for those sins in the fires and the torment of purgatory until your soul is purged 
uh, and until that sin is purged out, and then you can enter righteous. Now the problem is, think of the uh, beautiful passage in uh, Zephaniah chapter three or Zechariah, sorry, Zechariah chapter three, uh, where the angel of the Lord is standing beside Joshua. Satan is accusing, and the Lord says, "I've plucked Joshua like a burning stick right out of the fire. Keep your mouth shut, Satan. I've declared him righteous." I've clothed him in a pure white garment. I've put a clean turban on his head. This is my doing. Joshua is righteous. Joshua is declared righteous. And in Christ's atoning work, it's finished. You and I are righteous. Because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so... Purgatory really undercuts what is really a central element of the gospel, uh, and and so it's a it's a it's a real problem. Was it not also used by the church as a source of power? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And revenue and control. Absolutely, purgatory. Purgatory very quickly, and I think probably very naturally. I think anytime we add anything to the scriptures, it becomes a vehicle for power and control. I mean, I can add things to the scriptures, like men should have their hair cut a certain way. Don't don't wear hair that cut, touches the collars of your shirt. Uh, that makes you a hippie, or that makes you worldly. Women should wear certain clothing, and and it should look like this. Uh, whenever I add to the Word of God, I end up becoming the one who controls. Uh, and we do it on a micro level with all of our different churches that have got all their different rules. Uh, but I think purgatory is Rome doing it on a macro level. So at any rate, the way that we get to the book that you hold in your hand is by use of this thing that is called textual criticism. And the key question for anything, I don't care if you're talking Plato, I don't care if you're talking Shakespeare, I don't care if you're talking the Word of God. All of these historic documents, the key question is, what is original and what is not. That's it. That's the question that you've got to figure out. What's original? What's not original? How do you figure it out? You compare texts. You, you, you do an awful lot of work. To, to try to get the overall pattern of what is being said. And then if there's something that doesn't jive with that pattern, you begin to question it. But, but you are asking this basic question. What is original and what is not original? Now, I struggled with two classes in seminary. I, I struggled all the way through seminary. But there were two classes that I really struggled with. One was Greek exegesis. And the reason I struggled with Greek exegesis was because I had no idea how 
bad I was in grammar until I started taking a foreign language. <laughs> I have an English degree. Uh, I can talk about Dante's Inferno. I can talk about Shakespeare. I can talk about uh, literary analysis till your ears drop off. But the difference between a gerund and a participial phrase and a, uh, you know, I just like immediately, as soon as you start talking that stuff, I just go, huh? And that's essential to linguistic analysis. You've got to know this stuff. Uh, you've got to know how prepositions work and where they're placed and, and how the emphasis leads us to the, you know, the difference between the dative case, the accusative case, uh, all of these things are essential to rightly getting a piece of text and, and getting it uh, understood. So I, I, that, I, that is not my forte. I really struggled with that. Obviously, I passed it. I'm where I am today. But it was not easy for me. The second class that I really struggled with was textual criticism. And the reason I really struggled with that class is because I think it's primarily stupid. <laughs> and here's what I mean. In seminary, and I assume this is still how it is, but the textual criticism that we're looking at in seminary, well, I was going to write 1800s, it's really from about 1750 onwards, and it's up through about the 1970s. This is called modernism. This is the modern period. We're just, just at the very beginning of modernism, and by the 1970s, modernism has kind of come into its full flower and moves off the stage. After the period of modernism, which is about a 300-year period, we enter into this period of post-modernism. Now, modernism is asking these questions. What is original and what is not original? The difference is that they now are looking at individual books. And so, I, I mentioned the way we do textual criticism. What do these things have in common? What is different? So, for instance, the first five books of the Bible, they claim to be written by who? By Moses. Jesus says repeatedly in the Gospels, Moses said, and he quotes from various places in the Pentateuch. Reading the Bible tells you that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But then we've got textual criticism. And what they notice is in the texts, sometimes God is referred to as Jehovah. Sometimes God is referred to as Elohim. So this must be two different authors, right? The Jehovah texts are going to be written by person number one, 
and the Elohim texts are going to be written by person number two because you wouldn't switch up the way you refer to God. And then further, there's a law and then there's a sacrifice. In, in, in the first five books of the Bible, you see these two things kind of interrelated. I mean, we're dealing with it in Exodus. We've, we've clearly seen the law, and we're going to see more law. But right now, we're in this period in Exodus of the sacrificial system. So clearly, these have got to be different authors. Uh, you've got one author that really focuses on the law and how we should follow the the commands. But you got another author who really focuses on this sacrificial system. And so this priestly author is probably a later author who has taken these books and he's trying to put the class of priests forward politically in the nation of Israel. And so every time you read how important the priest is and how essential the priest is, that's because some later priest said, well, we got to get, we got to take over. We got to be powerful. So we're going to change and we're going to insert some stuff in here that shows how central the priestly system is. You can't have God's worship without God's priest. And so clearly that's a later author. That somebody later, after Israel has kind of started their, their, you know, nation and they're building things up and you've got the judges and, and, and you don't see priests as the central thing early in the book of Judges. Later, you see priests as very important, so much so that the Romans depose the high priest and appoint a different high priest. Because the high priest is a very central figure in the nation of Israel. So clearly, this isn't how it was at the beginning. And clearly, you've got this development over time. And so clearly, you've got another author that comes in and inserts these priestly texts into the Bible. Uh, I'm already getting... Man, I haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. All right, all right. So here's why I struggled with this in seminary. All right? This begins in the 1750s. It kind of reaches... It it dies a nasty, slow, painful death, thankfully, by the 1970s. And what it ends up doing is just carving the Bible out into a million pieces of nothingness. Uh, it just cuts the Bible into tiny little bits. It's all our own presuppositions. And my problem with it when I was way back in seminary more than 20 years ago was these guys just have a heart of unbelief. Uh, I'm not really interested in engaging with somebody that just doesn't believe that this is God's word. This is a faith issue, not an intellectual issue. Now, Here's where my whole point was building up to in the last 30 seconds. (laughs) Postmodernism has come along because 
when we're talking about what is original and what is not original, what we're talking about here is this essential question. So this is the modern, and when I say modern, I mean 1700s to mid-1900s. That's the question. What is true? What was truly spoken by Jesus Christ? What was truly spoken by Paul? What was truly spoken by Moses? What is true? What are the true texts? We can ignore the ones that we've decided are not true. We want to find what the true texts are. So, some of you young theologians, what is the difference between modernism and their question versus postmodernism and their question? Exactly. <laughs> Postmodernism answers this question. And the answer is nothing. <laughs> There's nothing that's true. There is no original text. There is no original truth. It's all subjective. It's all a matter of how you interpret it. So they don't care who the original authors are. So what they do in their analysis is they don't ask any of those modernistic questions about who wrote what. They simply look at the text as we've got it. And all of a sudden, they're doing their analysis on the received text. Well, they've now come back into my lane. <laughs> And they're starting to do things that I find helpful. And so here's the thing that I want you all to get, because I'm not claiming I'm ready to write a book on this, but I am saying I've discovered some new and exciting things about the book of Exodus that, to me, answer a lot of questions. And these things that I have discovered come from a post modern scholar. And he's looking at textual, you know, the, the, the overall textual uh, divisions and balances and what's narrative and what's, uh, you know, where, where do these divisions come in and all that sort of thing. And, and so I love it. I love it because he's dealing with the text that we've got in front of us. He doesn't care. It's not the word of God. It might as well be Plato. It might as well be Plato's Republic. It's just another book. But here are some interesting patterns in that book. And I just happen to go, whoa, those are interesting patterns in God's Word. <laughs> and so that's our, that's our point of, of difference. So from Exodus, you've heard me talking about this a lot, I know. From Exodus chapter 18 to Numbers chapter 9, there is a unit. There are actually seven different literary units. There are seven literary units in this. The first is this marriage covenant. 
And that runs through 20, chapter 18 to 2019. And then there's an appearance of God, a theophany. And then secondly, there are these judicial laws. We've already looked at those. And after the judicial laws, there's a theophany. And then thirdly, there are the worship laws. And that's what we're in the middle of right now. We've been talking about the ark, uh, you know, the, all the stuff, the, the worship, how we worship God. And after the end of the worship, there is another theophany. This is where Moses says, I want to see your face. God says, you can't. I'll show you my back. In each one of these sections, we're dealing with something unique in the section. And they're broken by these appearances of God, and it's an unfolding appearance of God. So that by the end of it, we have a much clearer picture of God from just looking at the various theophanies all the way through. So I think this is cool stuff. I think this is really exciting. I love this. You're not going to find this. I'm not going to be cocky or arrogant, but I have not found it in any commentaries. I've not seen anybody that has noticed this pattern except for one guy who is a professor at the University of Chicago and is a postmodern. He's, I think, maybe Jewish, but he's certainly secular Jewish. Uh, he's got no faith at all <laughs> in him. But he points out this structure that, that you can read the text and you can see this is the structure. There are seven unique units that are all the way through. The first one is this marriage covenant, the judicial laws, the worship laws, the tabernacle laws, the atonement, uh, purity laws, and then holiness laws. Uh, and at the end of each of these, there's a theophany, uh, an appearance of God that, that breaks these seven sections apart. And so here's my final point. I'm five minutes over. Here's why I wanted to do this thing on textual criticism and the benefits of textual criticism. First is, we all do it. We all, textual criticism is how you've got the book in your hand. And you ought to at least be aware of, of how that book came to be. Um, but what this does is it completely transforms our understanding of the Christian's relationship to God's law. Because when you think of God's law, what do you think? The Ten Commandments. And so think of John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. What's the point of Christian's journey at which he is frozen in fear and in terror and cannot move forward. The thunder of God's law. Mr. Legalist points him to Mount Sinai. And it's the thunder of God's law as Mount Sinai is going to crumble and, and, and bury him under the weight of that law that Christian is paralyzed and evangelist has to come and find him and say, no, you're not saved through the law. You've got to go to the gospel. But that's what most people think of when they think of the law of God. This thundering, dark, do this and die. Don't do this and die principle. And there is a component of that in God's law. 
But what that misses, when we think of God's law as the Ten Commandments, it misses this structure. Because the law of God really is the Mount Sinai Covenant. The Mount Sinai Covenant is a lot more than the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is just ten verses, or a little bit more, I think. But, but ten or twelve verses there. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The Mount Sinai Covenant, this seven-unit structure, is so much more. So when we think of God's law, we should not be thinking dark, foreboding, Ten Commandments over us, that kind of thing. But looking at this big picture and and exploring some of the complexities. Like I said, I'm not ready to write the book yet. Uh, I do think there's some cool stuff. There's some neat insights uh, in this as we look at this overall literary structure. Uh, so I have gotten the watch signal twice now. I'm five minutes over. Uh, I thought this was a one-off. I'm going to keep it as a one-off. I'd love to explore this further. Maybe one day I'll do a write-up on this. I, I do think, for what it's worth, this is some fresh stuff. It's certainly fresh for me. I've not heard. I've talked to other pastors uh, about it, and uh, they're like, "Whoa, yeah, that's a cool insight." And yeah, I see what you're saying, and 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 all that sort of stuff. So other people have not heard of it either. Uh, that's usually my test for good ideas. I come with a brand new idea, and 90% of the people go, yeah, I knew that since I was six. Uh, <laughs> but, but there's a lot of people that I'm talking to that are going, whoa, this is, this is interesting. This is unique. This is different. Uh, this is new and fresh. And I think if, I think there, it's, it's answering a lot of questions that we've been asking for centuries and we've gotten wrong. We've gotten the wrong answers to those questions. Is the Christian under law? Some will say absolutely not. Some will say yes, the law is now a guide. In what way does the Christian relate to the law? Uh, all of the, what is the law? Uh, all of these things, I think, are seen in this textual structure. That that uh, And I don't know, maybe I'll do another one-off next Sunday, and just open that up, uh, because I do think this is some cool stuff. Uh, I hope, if I'm not getting you excited, I hope you at least hear my excitement in it, and trust me, <laughs> and, and I'm trying to mine some of the diamonds uh, that I'm finding here in this soil, and, and there's some diamonds uh, in there. I'm just not good enough to bring them all out, but it's good stuff. So, I'm sorry, I am over, our kids are being patient That's right. The law points out our sin. Well, and that's, yeah, maybe that's another one-off where we need to open up that whole debate over the law because it's, it's, a, big, it's a big issue. <laughs> I think it's answered in this, in this literary structure. I think if we see the law, particularly in the context of a marriage covenant, uh, you know, when, when my wife stood at the altar and she promised to love me and and all of that until you know sickness and health and poverty and richer richer for poor till death do we part is she engaging in the law yeah she is she's engaging in the law 
She is listing out a legal, co- or not legal, but you know what I mean. She, she's listing out a covenant that involves things that she commits to doing. But it's in the context of marriage. There's a different, <laughs> that changes everything between my wife standing in front of me at the altar, or beside me at the altar, is a different thing from what I signed when I bought my house. When when I bought my house, I agreed to a lot of things. Namely, I'm going to pay the bank X amount of money every month. Uh, I agreed. I entered into a legal law thing. But the context makes it totally different. Me marrying my wife is a totally different context from me buying a house. Uh, and, and I think that context is what we see here in this literary structure, uh, from, from this section. So, I'm sorry, I'm way over. Uh, let me, let me close, and, uh, I think next Sunday I may just open up that one section. So if this is intriguing, I hope, hope you're at least hearing my passion for it. Uh, I hope I can communicate why <laughs> this is so good. This is rich stuff, and I'll, I'll try to just spend more time just on that issue of the Sinai Covenant uh, next Sunday. But with that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your word. Uh, we, can, we can explore it. We can mine it, and it is bottomless. Uh, we will never reach the end. Uh, but Lord, give us the, the excitement, the eagerness, and the curiosity of a three-year-old. Uh, as that three-year-old explores your creation, help us to, to explore your word with that same wonder and joy and to see our Savior. In Christ's name, amen.